Lots of channels, nothing to watch, especially if you're searching for the truth. It's time to interrupt your regularly scheduled programs with something actually worth watching. Salem News Channel, straightforward, unfiltered, with in-depth insight and analysis from the greatest collection of conservative minds like Hugh Hewitt, Mike Gallagher, Sebastian Gorka, and more. Find truth. Watch 24-7 on SNC.TV and on Local Now, Channel 525. The following program is sponsored by the National Prayer Chapel. I'm pressing on the upward way, new heights I'm to gleam of glory bright, but still I'll pray till heaven I found, Lord lead me Pressing on to higher ground. And what is that higher ground? Jesus talked about it in the Gospel of John, chapter 14. Don't you believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words I have spoken to you I don't speak on my own. The Father who dwells in me does his works. Trust me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on account of the works themselves. I assure you that whoever believes in me will do the works that I do. They will do even greater works than these, because I am going to the Father. I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Father can be glorified in the Son. 
When you ask me for anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. I will ask the Father, and he will send another companion who will be with you forever. This companion is the Spirit of truth, whom the world can't receive, because it neither sees him nor recognizes him. You know him, because he lives with you and will be in you. I won't leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Soon the world will no longer see me, but you will see me. Because I live, you will live too. On that day you will know that I am in my Father, you are in me, and I am in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them loves me. Whoever loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love them and reveal myself to them. This is from John chapter 14, verses 10 through 21. This higher ground that Jesus is speaking about, it begins not with conversion, but it's something after conversion. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So he's speaking to those who already love Jesus and are obeying him. And he says the reward for obedience is that we will be loved by the Father and that the Father will come with Jesus and reveal himself to us by coming as an indwelling person, as the Holy Spirit, who will convince the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. So this is the higher ground we're pressing towards. The end of the road for Christians is not simply to be converted. It is not simply to finally have victory over your sin, but it is to have victory over your sin and then go on to receive the full indwelling Christ in your body. And with that comes the power to perform the work of the gospel with success. And Jesus says that we will do the same works that he did. So I'm going to review a little bit on this subject from what I did yesterday. We went through the Gospel of Mark. Before I do that, I just wanted to give you a quick update on Pastor Ray. He is still having a lot of back pain. He's doing much better today. He had a bit of a spiritual breakthrough in the night that I think is going to turn his back around. So I hope that he'll be back on the air soon. But again, I'm on today by myself. So I thank you, and we're especially grateful for your prayers. This broadcast is truly a spiritual war, and its success will largely depend on not just our prayers, but your prayers, and those who will take on the burden for this broadcast. Last month, I think we were downloaded in over 29 countries. So this broadcast really is going out all over the world, and it's going out quite far into the Washington, D.C. metro area. We have listeners in even as far as White Fields, Maryland. We have listeners past Baltimore. So I'm thankful for all of you, and I ask that you would continue to lift us up in prayer. So the material I shared yesterday, we walked through the Gospel of Mark, the first several chapters, and I've called this Gospel of Mark the gospel of the Holy Spirit, because what the gospel of Mark shows is it focuses in 
the way that it's structured is the very first thing we see about Jesus is we see his identity as God's son. And then the second thing we see is his mission, which is to baptize us in the Holy Spirit and with fire. Now, this second work has sometimes been called entire sanctification. It has sometimes been called the baptism of the Holy Spirit. But what is included in this is two things. It is power for ministry, and it is a radical change in your character to make you bold, to make you holy through and through, to give you strength to resist every temptation that would come at you. People who've received this power have been willing to go literally to sell themselves into slavery so that they might win the lost for, for Jesus. You can read about this. The Moravians experience this. There's many testimonies of what it has looked like. They're willing to work in horrible conditions with no salary because they're filled with the spirit of God. And they say, shouldn't the lamb of God have the reward of the travail of his soul? Shouldn't these souls be saved? I'm willing to do whatever it takes to bring as many people to Christ as I can. And the motive for this is not just compassion. We're not just worried, oh, hell is so horrible. But we're motivated by the glory of God and by his kingdom truly coming on the earth. If you think about the past 2,000 years, the kingdom of God has kind of grown in fits and spurts. We've had, I feel like the high watermark in the United States was the temperance movement. And then prohibition came and was part of our constitution. And that was awesome. And then somehow the tide got pushed back the other way. And now we're in a far more wicked state than we were before. So the problem that we face is that Christians are not being taught and they are not actively pursuing this higher ground. And so the kingdom of God does not go forward. Instead, it goes backward. And so what we see is instead of the world rapidly being brought under the dominion of Christ, which it could be if every Christian were truly empowered the way the disciples were empowered or were truly empowered the way Jesus is empowered, it would only take maybe a matter of several years for the entire world to hear the gospel, for our policies, for our inner, not just domestic, but international policy to totally change for righteousness, for sex trafficking, child trafficking, child pornography, for these things to be wiped out. But that's only going to happen by the power of the Holy Spirit. So I just want to review with you, yesterday I shared from the Gospel of Mark, and what we looked at was we looked at Jesus first comes, his mission is to baptize us in the Holy Spirit, and the first thing we see him do is he goes to John the Baptist, and John the, bapti John the Baptist baptizes Jesus in water, and as he's coming out of the water, the Holy Spirit comes down like a dove, a voice from heaven says, this is my son whom I dearly love. I am well pleased in him. And then Jesus goes into the wilderness for 40 days where he is tested. Will he deny God after he has received this power? And the answer is no. He remains faithful even under horrible temptation. So then he comes out 
and the rest of the Gospel of Mark for about the next nine chapters are snapshots that show all of the different things that flow out of the baptism of the Holy Spirit on Jesus. So these are not random illustrations. You'll notice they aren't repetitive. Most of the illustrations show a unique situation that, hi that highlights one aspect of the Holy Spirit baptism. So we, what we see Jesus doing as a result of his being baptized in the Holy Spirit is he begins to preach that the kingdom of God is here. Now is the time to enter. So repent so you can enter. Two, we see him call and make disciples, which he never did before he was baptized in the Holy Spirit. Three, we see him teach with authority in the synagogues and publicly from ships, from the mountain. Four, we see him cast out demons. Five, we see him heal the sick. We also see him raise the dead. That is the story of Jairus. And we see him forgive or not forgive sins. He pronounces that the man who was paralyzed, who his friends brought the paralyzed man to Jesus, Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. But then he turns in a several chapters later and he says that if you blaspheme the Holy Ghost, your sins will not be forgiven. So as a result of this baptism of the Holy Spirit, Jesus has the power to forgive or not forgive sins. And then the last thing that we see is that Jesus has this ability to give this power to others. He calls together the 12 apostles and he gives them power to cast out demons and to preach. And then he, a few chapters later, he again calls them together and this time he sends them out in pairs. They still have the power to preach and cast out demons, but then they're given additional power. They're given the power to heal the sick by anointing them with oil and laying hands on them. And they're given the power to pronounce judgment against those cities or towns that would not repent at their preaching. And then the last thing that we see when we come to the book of Acts is that in the book of Acts, the apostles again have the power to confer the baptism of the Holy Spirit to others. So, so simply what we see is everything that Jesus was able to do as a result of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, his disciples are given that power to do it. And we see this throughout the Gospel of Mark, we see it in the Great Commission, and we see it in the book of Acts. So we see the disciples preaching, just like Jesus did. We see them calling and making disciples, just like Jesus did. We see them teaching with authority. And what are they teaching? They're teaching that we are to obey everything Jesus has commanded us. So it's not just that we go out on some street evangelism and pass out tracts and pray a sinner's prayer with somebody and say, this is wonderful. You've been born into the kingdom. And then we leave and we never see them again. That is not making disciples. To make a disciple is that includes that you are teaching them to obey everything Jesus commanded. Four, the disciples are casting out demons. Five, they're healing the sick. Six, they're raising the dead. Seven, they're forgiving or not forgiving sins. We see this particularly in John 20 verses 21 to 23. And lastly, they have the power to give this baptism to others. So as I just read in the opening, 
it was fulfilled where Jesus said that the works that I've been doing, you will do also. And what we see is that this power did not end in the apostolic age. Instead, what we see in the book of Acts is that it was normative for every Christian to receive this baptism. And so much was it normative that when the apostles came to a place where they had not received the baptism, they would lay hands on them and pray, and then they would receive the Holy Spirit. This is Acts 8, 14 to 17. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to Samaria. When they arrived, they prayed for the new believers there that they might receive the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Again in Acts 19, 5 through 6, on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. In First and Second Timothy, you see references to the gift being in Timothy through the laying on of hands. So it, the, this baptism of the Holy Spirit did not always require the laying on of hands. We saw Cornelius and his household the Holy Spirit just fell on them and baptized them in the Spirit as Peter was preaching. But sometimes it was necessary for the apostles to lay hands on the new believers so that they would receive the Holy Spirit. And so what we had was an entire church that was empowered, that was holy, and that was literally taking over the world for Jesus Christ. So... Let's continue. What we then looked at, and this is important, is there's a problem today in most of the way that the gospel is taught in churches, in institutional churches, which is that Christians are being directed to look at passages of scripture that do not speak of disciples as examples of how to be Christians instead of being directed to look at the disciples as examples of how to be Christians. So we looked, one example we looked at was the story of the Syrophoenician woman who came to Jesus, who wanted a demon cast out of her daughter. And Jesus answered her, for the glory of God he answered. But the woman did not leave everything she had, she just went home. She did not become a disciple. She did not ask Jesus for the power to cast out demons. She just wanted one demon cast out of her daughter, and then she was fine. Now, this is in contrast to someone like Mary Magdalene, out of whom the scripture says seven devils were cast out of her, and then she in turn became a very powerful soul winner for Jesus. She was with him all the way through the crucifixion, one of the first people at the tomb, she was there in the upper room. She was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she went out and she won many souls for Christ. The Syrophoenician woman did not do that. She went to Jesus. She had her prayer answered and she went home. So this is a huge problem. If you are looking and saying, what should I be doing as a Christian? And you're saying, okay, I should be like the Syrophoenician woman. I should keep asking Jesus. I should refuse to take no for an answer. I should have faith that he'll answer my prayer for this other person. 
that's not the example of what we're supposed to be doing as disciples of Jesus, but we are to be like Jesus. We are to be making disciples just like Jesus did. Now Jesus saw that this was a problem, and so he continually was drawing a distinction between the crowds and the disciples. He would teach the crowds only in parables, and then he would privately teach the disciples the true meaning of the kingdom of God. And then finally, he drew the line in Mark chapter 8, and he said, If anyone will come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. He said, If we try to save our life, we will lose it. But if we lose our life for his sake, we will find it. The Syrophoenician woman did not lose her life for Jesus' sake. She simply came, received a blessing from Jesus, and went home. Now the problem is that many Christians today think that by doing that, that they are being saved Christians. They think, okay, if I just go to Jesus with whatever I need, and then he answers me, then that must mean I'm saved. But that's not what it means, because you have not lost your life for Jesus. Then Peter, he said, Lord, we've left everything and followed you. And they had. They had left their families. They'd left their homes. They'd left their businesses. It's not like they could just go back and pick up where they left off. It was gone. Probably their savings were depleted. And Jesus said, yes, there's no one who hasn't left everything for my sake who won't receive a hundredfold in this life with persecution and then eternal life in the life to come. So what this looks like very practically, the difference between these two, is I'll give you a personal example. Pastor Ray is sick, as I've shared. So I've, I have been praying every day for his healing, and he's still not being healed. And this is totally not the biblical example. The biblical example is that I should receive power from Jesus to lay hands on him and he be healed. I mean, we've We've gone to James and we've said, Lord, you said, if you call the elders of the church together and anointed with oil and laid hands, the sick would recover. We've done that. We have persistently asked. But that's not what Jesus wants. He wants us to be empowered, soul-winning machines. We see, for example, that Peter... When he walked through the town, even just his shadow was able to heal people. That's incredible. And this did not end with the apostles, but we have modern day examples of this very thing happening. For example, in the story of the revival in Argentina, in the 1950s and 60s, thousands of people would crowd into soccer stadiums to attend a healing evangelistic meeting. And there were so many people who wanted to go, they couldn't even get in the stadium. And so for about a mile all around the stadium, people were thronging forward. They had to put up television screens to show to the people outside what was happening inside the stadium. And literally thousands of people would be healed in each of these meetings. Everyone who had faith to be healed would be healed. And that's exactly what we see in the Gospels. It says everyone who came to Jesus was healed. And then the same thing happens in the book of Acts. It was 
all of the sick were healed who truly had faith to be healed. It wasn't that I prayed for somebody and maybe they were healed and maybe they weren't. That's not the biblical model. And yet that's how most of us today are living as Christians. The same thing happened in Maria Woodworth Edder's meetings. She was a tent revivalist, but she would also meet in buildings. She held revival meetings in Los Angeles, in Chicago, in places all across the United States in the early 1900s. And she, there were so many people who'd come to the meeting, she couldn't pray for all of them. So she had altar workers, so men and women who were also filled with the Spirit, who stood at the front, and they would pray for people as well. So what would happen is she would, she would give a sermon, and then there would be an altar call. And at the altar call, there would be sinners who needed to receive Christ. There would be Christians who needed to be baptized in the Holy Spirit for service. And there would be sick who needed healing. And one eyewitness described this one of the meetings and talked about how the people who were praying for the sick, they would just rebuke the sickness, order it out, and each healing would take place in a matter of minutes. And I'm talking very visible healings. For example, one person came in with a massive goiter on their throat. And within minutes, the goiter was completely gone. There were people who came in who had open wounds out of which were, there was all this ooze and they couldn't walk. They were about to die. And they would be healed and they would jump up and start running up and down across the room. This is, and this is what we're talking about when we're talking about revival. Is that the power and the person of God come to actually live in his people, which is the new covenant promise. So now, I want to just say one more thing before we move on. Jesus said that about himself. He said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. So Jesus said he was the first grain of wheat that fell into the ground and died so that he could bear fruit. We know from Genesis that the principle of fruit bearing is that it fr fruit brings forth fruit after its own kind and that the fruit has seeds in it. This is Genesis 1.11. And the first commission God ever gave Adam and Eve was be fruitful and multiply. So this is another expression of the Great Commission. So in the New Testament, we're to be fruitful and multiply by producing disciples of Jesus. And in accordance with that it's fruit after their kind, that means the disciples we produce are like Jesus. And they, in turn, are able to produce other disciples who are like Jesus. That's what it means that the fruit has seeds in it. So I know in my own personal experience that this has been very difficult because I have very zealously gone into street evangelism. I've done pro-life work. I have done street preaching at major festivals in Washington, D.C. I have welcomed homeless people to live in my home for months until they could get back on their feet. And this power was not displayed. So 
So let me just tell you a little bit about it. About it. So for example, I went to the Cherry Blossom Festival in DC a few years ago to do some street preaching and there were literally crowds. It was probably several thousand people on the streets. And we were preaching with a megaphone, a loudspeaker, and it was like nobody even looked at us. And it, it was hard to even see where the person preaching was because there were so many people. And this went on for about an hour with no response. And I was finally just so crushed. And so I went over and I sat in the shade and I was crying. And a person came up to me and said, are you okay? What's wrong? And I just said, all of these people are going to hell and they don't have to. And that just struck me as so tragic. And then the person I said that to was just kind of like, well, I know, I understand that you feel that way. So this is what I mean. There's an utter lack of power in mind witness. The same thing happened, I went down to a pro-life, uh, several pro-life outreaches and you see these women walk into the clinic prepared to abort their baby. You plead with them and say, you know, you can still change your mind. I'm willing to help you. You have options. And then they go in and they come out and they've had the abortion. It's like, I just tried to stop someone from being murdered and I failed. Someone was just murdered because I have no power. So that's really what we're dealing with here. It, I would love to think that I could just be forgiven of my sins and then now I'm saved. But I just can't believe that when I look at the examples of what it means to be a disciple in the scriptures and when I look at the massive evil that is going on every day, not just in the United States, but throughout the world. I don't know if you knew this, there was just an article several months ago that came out about the gold mines in South America. The Pope even said something about this. There are massive prostitution rings where there are literally thousands of pre-adolescent boys who are sex workers for these miners who are mining gold in South America. It is not uncommon around the world for parents to sell their own children into sex slavery. I think there's an estimated, I just read, I think 17.1 million women and girls alone in sex slavery. Now, how can I think that the kingdom of God is going forward while this is going on? How can I think that I'm just blessedly forgiven of my own sins and yet I have no power to do anything to promote God's kingdom to rescue these people. God is not pleased by all of the evil overrunning the world. We just read yesterday, Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. The gospel and Jesus provide the full provision necessary for this evil to be totally broken. There's no reason why anyone should still be in sex slavery 2,000 years after the death and resurrection of Christ. This should have been put away a long time ago, but it hasn't because the Christians have been sitting around thinking that as long as they were forgiven of their sins, then they didn't need to do anything else. But that's not why Jesus primarily came. 
Jesus didn't come to forgive you of your sins and then let everybody else go on in horrible physical abuse and rape and destruction of property and murder while you sit around and say that you're justified by faith. That is not why Jesus came. I also wanted to share about this home, these homeless people I had staying with me. This was another one that was very heartbreaking for me. There was a young man who I met who was sleeping in a boiler room. He had lost his job, his father didn't want to help him even though he lived in the area. So he came and he, he lived with us. Um, at the time I was living in a one bedroom apartment, so we just had a mattress we put on the floor. He was able to get a job, start to get back on his feet, and we were continually sharing the gospel with him, reading the Bible together, witnessing to him, calling him to be converted. He was, he was a very, um, you've met people like this. They're not sophisticated. They are very colorful in their language. They are very open in this, in the sins they commit. But Jesus calls for them to be born again and to become new people. So we were continually calling this person for several months. When I moved out of that apartment, I left this man. I helped, I helped with the landlord so that he would be able to take over the lease after us. So I left all of my furniture with him. I paid half his security deposit. And I later discover that he has had a child since then out of wedlock who he calls his poor bastard. He's now moved to a different state and he's just gotten worse. The sin in his life is just taking him farther and farther into darkness. And this is not what Jesus wants. Jesus does not want me or want you to really invest in these souls and then have them just stubbornly reject the truth. So something that we've shared and that I wanted to share in more detail today is that we've often said ordinary Christians can be filled with the Holy Spirit and so just through your ordinary life, you are making disciples and bringing them to Jesus. But I wanted to share with you today a story of a young woman who actually experienced that so that you can help understand what we're saying. We, As I said earlier, we have no idea what Jesus is going to do with us when we give ourselves over to him in the, for the second work of grace, for him to actually come and live in us as another person. Some people have sold everything they have and become evangelists. They've gone as missionaries to other countries. But some people have continued to live a relatively normal life, but it has been empowered. So I wanted to share with you, this is the story of a young woman named Helen Ewan. She was born in Glasgow, Scotland in 1910. And I'm reading from the book, They Knew Their God, Volume 6, by Lillian G. Harvey. These are excellent books that, particularly the earlier ones in the series, talk a lot about men and women who have received the second work of grace. So this is Helen Ewan, and James A. Stewart wrote this extract about Helen. He writes, 
At the same time that I was saved during a mighty movement of God in my city of Glasgow, Scotland, a girl about the same age was also saved. Her name was Helen Ewan. She was just a slip of a girl, but at the very threshold of her new life in Christ, she crowned him as absolute Lord and was thus filled with the Holy Spirit. She had accepted the invitation of her Lord to, quote, drink abundantly. As it says in John seven thirty-seven to 39 in the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, saying, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me, as the scripture hath said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. But this spake he of the Spirit, which they that believe on him should receive. These torrents of living water began to flow from Helen's life. Helen was born around 1910 into an ordinary, working-class family. She was an only child. Both of her parents loved Christ supremely. The blessed Son of God was the center around which the whole household re revolved. They lived for only one thing, and that was to please God in every detail of their lives. Three well-marked Bibles were always conspicuous in their living room when I visited them. After her conversion at the age of 14, Helen's whole personality was radiant with the glory of the Lord. God in his sovereign grace had shone into her darkened soul in order that through this ordinary earthenware container might be magnified the, the surpassing majesty of the power of the gospel. This manifestation of his glory astonished us all. Helen Ewan had a common life, but it was lit up with the glory of God. I often wondered how she could stand so much glory in her fragile earthen vessel. Being full of the Holy Spirit, she was full of Christ. As she studied the word of God, under the illuminating guidance of the Holy Spirit, God took of the treasures of the Lord Jesus and revealed them to her. Many times, Helen would stop Christians on the street and with a radiant face tell of some choice portion of scripture where she had found some new picture of her blessed Redeemer. These friends often left her presence weeping. They said, we have seen Jesus. We have looked into his glorious face. The awe of God remained upon their souls for the remainder of the day. Like Spurgeon, Helen Ewan was at her very best when she told us of her Lord. It was at such times she stood out as a solitary figure, so far removed from the rest of us. She knew the Lord in such a deep, intimate way. Many testified that just her passing smile or her cheery, good day, God bless you, was an uplifting tonic to them the rest of the day. In her prayer life, Helen was an example to us all. She rose each morning around five o'clock to commune with her Lord. She would not turn on the heat in her cold little room or seek to make herself comfortable in any way because she felt that she would be more alert in the cold. And besides, those for whom she would be praying in foreign lands were not sitting in comfort. She would begin her communion with God with praise and worship. 
She then read the word of God to warm her heart. She remembered the words of her fellow Scot, Robert Murray McShane, It is the look that saves, but it is the gaze that sanctifies. Helen gazed with rapture into the face of her Lord. I could not mention to you the expressions of adoration which she wrote down in her diary after such times with Jesus. They are too sacred for publication. After fellowship and communion, Helen began her ministry of intercession for friends and family, for her church assembly, and for hundreds of missionaries on the foreign fields. Then came her prayer ministry for the unsaved. She had a list of unsaved persons to whom she had testified and for whom she prayed daily until they were born again. Her yearnings after the salvation of the lost were awful to behold. The reason God gave her so many souls among rich and poor, young and old, illiterate and intelligent, was that she agonized for them in earnest intercession inside the veil. There was nothing vague or general about her pleas. After her death, her mother kindly allowed me to go over her diaries, and there I saw that the petitions expressed in them were strong and definite. She gave the date when she began to pray for a person, and then the date when the prayer was answered. These diaries revealed a prayer life that moved God and man. No wonder that when God promoted her to glory at the age of 22, many wept throughout Scotland, and, men and missionaries in far-off lands felt they had lost their greatest prayer warrior. Not only at the early morning hour did Helen commit to her Lord the whole of the new day with all that it entailed, but all through the day she sought his guidance in matters small and great. It was no small thing for her to shop for some personal piece of clothing, and she might be seen to pause in front of a store to seek his guidance before going in for a piece of ribbon. She must please the Lord Jesus in all things, and she would not be led by the traditions of men. That no doubt explains the remark of her friends that Helen was always dressed right. Helen's seeking after lost souls puts us all to shame. Here again, she seemed to rise head and shoulders above all of us, even among tens of thousands of believers in our great city at that time. I have been out on the streets of Glasgow near midnight with my tracts and gospel text boards on many occasions when I would see Helen busy in her own method of personal soul winning. I have seen her on a cold Scottish winter's evening with her arms around a poor drunken prostitute telling her of Jesus and his love. On other occasions she would be dealing with drunken men seeking to lead them to her savior. In the evangelistic meetings, she was always on the alert for lost souls. Sitting near the rear of the building, she would see a woman sitting alone, sorrow written on her face and weariness in her eyes. Under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, Helen would slip over and sit beside her, praying inwardly during the whole of the service. When the lady arose to leave, Helen would leave with her, talking about the message and encouraging the lady to unburden her heart. In this way, more than one soul who was burdened with the cares of this life and bowed down with the weight of sin and despair was led to know the Savior 
as Helen pointed her to the Lamb of God under the lamppost or while waiting at the streetcar stop. When finally Helen entered the University of Glasgow, she used to walk several miles from her home to the varsity each day so that she could distribute tracts along the way. At the same time, she could save streetcar fare and give it to the missionary cause. Needless to say, she had the joy of leading many students to Christ on the campus. Robert Murray McShane used to seal his letters with a sketch of the sun going down behind the mountains and with a motto over it, The Night Cometh. It was the same feeling of urgency that drew Helen on. Like Murray McShane and Samuel Rutherford, Helen carried the fragrance of Christ with her. She manifested the power of the Spirit, which so few have ever possessed. Her body was a walking temple of the Holy Spirit. Thus, wherever she went, the power of God was manifested. When she entered into any church service, immediately the atmosphere was charged with his power. I have known her to slip quietly into a prayer meeting, which had already begun, and sit on the back seat. Yet every one of us knew that she had arised because of the mighty sense of the presence of God manifested in our midst. Evangelists often sought after her service. It was not that she could sing or speak in public. I do not think she ever sang a solo or gave a public testimony in any of their campaigns. All she did was sit quietly in the meetings and pray. Yet these evangelists knew that if they could only have Helen attend their services, there would be sure to be a mighty anointing upon the meetings. Some leading evangelists have told me that she was the most remarkable person they ever knew in this way. One outstanding English evangelist, when an aged warrior testified that possibly the greatest campaign he ever conducted was one in which Helen was able to attend every service for two weeks while she was on her vacation. I was talking one day with two professors from the University of London who were believers. We were talking about dynamic Christianity when one of them suddenly said, Brother Stuart, I want to tell you a story. Then he went on to tell of a remarkable young lady on the campus of the Glasgow University when he was lecturing there. Wherever she went on the campus, he said, the fragrance of Christ followed her. For example, a group of unconverted students would be jesting and telling dirty stories when someone would suddenly say, shh, shh, here she comes, quiet, and this young lady would walk by unconsciously leaving the power and the awe of the presence of God behind her. He said that in the university prayer meetings, they could always tell if Helen was present, whether she prayed aloud or not, or they could tell when she entered the room without hearing or seeing her, because they sensed the presence of God. Another feature of Helen's life was her deep appetite for the word of God and a deep spiritual penetration into divine truth. She did not just leaf through her Bible for palatable portions, which suited her fancy at the moment. She studied the whole book from Genesis to Revelation. She became a deeply intelligent child of God, 
even at the age of 16 or 17. At the university, Helen was preparing herself for missionary service among the Russian people of Eastern Europe. Already she was learning the Russian language in preparation for her life's ministry. But God, in his wisdom and love, called her home at the age of 22. She had been spending her vacation with an aunt, and while there, was continually about her master's business. She was taken ill suddenly, and as suddenly was called home. It was so unexpected that it shocked us all. When the news reached me, I was stunned, and I could not eat or sleep. So great was my grief that the people were amazed to learn that Helen was no more to me than a spiritual friend and companion, not my fiancé. I was not alone in my sorrow. Thousands wept throughout Scotland and Great Britain. Many sought to express something of the blessing her life had meant to them. For example, at her memorial service, a Christian leader stood and said, I was old enough to be her father. I had known the Lord many years longer than she had known him, but still she seemed so far ahead of me spiritually. On far-off mission stations, British missionaries grieved at the news. Who would bear them up so faithfully at the throne of grace now? Who would step into this gap and take her place? So the story of Helen, she was only 14 years old when she was converted, and there was not a long period of time between her conversion and her being filled with the Holy Spirit. It appears to have happened probably within the same day. So she only lived until the age of 22. So from the age of 14 to the age of 22, she never preached a sermon. She never sang a solo. She didn't even share her testimony publicly, like on a stage. But she had this rich prayer life. I mean, can you imagine how long it would take you if you got up in the morning to first praise and worship, then read the word of God, then have a prayer intercession ministry for your friends, family, church assembly, and hundreds of missionaries on foreign fields, and then have a prayer ministry for the unsaved. We're talking probably at least three or four hours here every day. And that type of prayer life comes out of that baptism in the Holy Spirit. Likewise, her personal witness, going out and speaking to the prostitutes at night, going and speaking to the drunks outside the bars, that came out of her personal baptism in the Holy Spirit. And so we see that this young woman who only lived for eight years after she became a Christian was able to do more in those eight years than most of us have ever done in our entire lives, whether we've been Christians for a few years or whether we've been Christians for many years. And God's intention is for all of us to receive the same baptism of the Holy Spirit. The writer goes on. The word of God says, One of you shall chase a thousand, and two shall put ten thousand to flight. Helen's life had been worth more than a thousand ordinary Christians in the church. What is the explanation of such a life? How could a young lady, still pursuing her studies, never having preached a sermon or sung a solo, 
never having traveled more than 200 miles from her home, how could her life so affect people in all parts of the world that when she died, they felt that a mighty general had fallen? There is only one explanation. She was filled with the Holy Spirit. She was filled with the Holy Spirit. She was an ordinary young woman who became extraordinary simply because she surrendered all to Christ and appropriated for herself all that was hers in him. She took time to receive and thus passed on the glory of the Lord. May you, dear reader, be so fully surrendered to Jesus that you will, like Helen Ewan, fully reflect the glory of the Lord. You've been listening to Pilgrim's Progress. This is brought to you by the National Prayer Chapel and dear listeners like you. We're so grateful. I would love to hear from you. I would love to know that you're praying for us. You can write to us at the National Prayer Chapel, P.O. Box 2346, Woodbridge, Virginia, 22195. Please also visit our webpage, nationalprayerchapel.com. That's nationalprayerchapel.com. There you can listen to this sermon again, as well as our past sermons. I believe we have over 1,800 audio files on our webpage. So there is no shortage of information and preaching about revival, about receiving this baptism of the Holy Spirit. We are praying every day that you will receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit and that signs and wonders will follow this broadcast. Thank you again. You can also follow us on Facebook and on Twitter by searching for National Prayer Chapel. God bless you. Thank you. With great joy Now unto him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy.